0: The story of Muslims in America has primarily been told through the experiences of men and often revolves around narratives of immigration. Sylvia Chan-Malik expands upon and challenges this scholarly pattern in Being Muslim, a cultural history of women of color and American Islam. Chan-Malik centers black Muslim women's involvement in US communities and the various spaces of social identity that are frequently ignored in scholarship. Crucial to her analysis is how social, racial-religious formation informs both lived religion and how Muslim women are represented in public. Being Muslim, therefore, can be variously embodied in black Muslim womanhood. Through an episodic exploration of Islam in 20th and 21st century America, Chan Malik demonstrates the crucial ways race, gender, and religion intersect in our conversation We discuss the blackness of American Islam, the Ahmadiyya movement, domesticity, the nation of Islam, Bedi Shabazz, cultural representations of black Muslim women, the problem with feminism and how it can be deployed, American perceptions of Iranians 1979 revolution, and environmentalism and food justice. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my wonderful conversation with Sylvia Chan-Malik about Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color and American Islam, published with NYU Press in 2018. Welcome, Sylvia. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are
1: you? I'm uh, good. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So this uh, book, Being Muslim, is wonderful. Uh, it's a very, very enjoyable read. Um, you're tying lots of really interesting threads together, and I, I'm excited about um, how people are going to respond to the book, which I know you've already gotten a lot of excitement about it. Um, before we get into the book, though, we always start with a little bit about uh, our authors. Um, and while you don't, I think, at least explicitly identify as being kind of in Islamic studies, I really think of you as kind of uh, one of the the, the future avenues for, for how to do really exciting stuff uh, when it comes to the study of Islam. So could you tell us a little bit about uh your kind of intellectual trajectory um where you place yourself in terms of your scholarship and uh and, and what brought you to the subject of uh, uh islam in america
1: sure um first of all, thanks again for having me it 's a real pleasure uh to be talking with you today and so one of the ways I kind of describe my entryway into this topic is that i'm accidentally in Islamic studies and not accidentally, like I just, you know, Oh, I had to find a topic or something like that. Um, but a lot of things converged in my personal life, uh, to bring me to this work and, and kind of shape, uh, how it turned out ultimately. And what I first tell people is that I entered grad school, um, in the last week of August in 2001, And prior to entering grad school, I had done a lot of things. Uh, My undergraduate work had been in literary and cultural studies and ethnic studies, and I was a pretty vocal uh, and engaged student activist at UC Berkeley in the 1990s. And after that, I went on to work in journalism and do a lot of writing for local alternative weeklies like the San Francisco Bay Guardian and the East Bay Express. Um, And so I went back to graduate school. I decided to go back uh, in 2000 uh, to apply um, to do work on social justice and political activism through the avenue of culture uh, because that's what i had been working in as a journalist and in particular music um, and hip-hop culture um, and expressive culture so one of the things i was particularly wanting to look at was intersections between african american and asian american communities you know 10 years after the los angeles uprisings Uh, Thinking about cross-racial coalition and political activism uh, was something I really wanted to look at and looking at the ways in which young people were engaging in popular culture and musical forms to express this. So I went to graduate school, end of August 2001, (laughs) trying to think through these issues. I had written some things about, you know, things that were going on on MTV and music, kind of dealing with this. And I think the second week we were supposed to, you know, I was supposed to present in seminar that day, um, 9-11 happened, right? And it really wasn't, you know, for all intents and purposes to be a graduate student, like we really didn't know what we were supposed to do. I mean, we were all the way in California. So I had relatives calling me from overseas from China, you know, saying, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "Of course I'm okay. I'm in California." But it really felt as if we were all frozen. Like we didn't know whether we were supposed to have class, do things as usual. And so as someone, you know, who was embarking on this work of studying communities that historically been disenfranchised and how to create political um, a political future together, I immediately got involved in activism around this issue um, in the Bay Area at the time. And what happened in the Bay Area was very organically, uh, coalitions started forming between Japanese Americans and Muslims uh, in the Bay Area. We organized peace marches, vigils. And so I started going to these things, attending these things. And I very quickly discovered That so much of the, you know, so many of the dynamics that I had noticed going on between African American and Asian American communities, um, sort of struggling for resources, talking about kind of authentic identities as Americans and space, uh, issues of space and neighborhood and community um, involvement within Los Angeles and other neighborhoods were very similar in Muslim communities. Right. So I saw these dynamics playing out between South Asian, um, you know, Pakistani-American and Muslims and Yemeni-American grocers and African-American Muslims in Oakland, California, and seeing a lot of the same sort of dynamics that I had already seen um, in Los Angeles and other communities between blacks and Asians. But th- what was different this time was that they were all under this identity of Muslim which was suddenly thrust into the spotlight. So um, I started thinking through how I could use my training and my understanding of racial and ethnic theory and racial formation in the United States to think about the ways in which Muslims were interacting under this intense you know, gaze of the state and of the media and of politics and having to emerge in this spotlight as some sort of unified voice when they were anything but. So that was the beginning of my research of thinking about Muslim communities in the US through this lens of race and racial coalition and racial conflict. Um, and in the process of becoming very engaged with this community, I started studying Islam as well as a religion, you know, trying to understand what this faith was. Um, and in that process, Manda you know, making a lot of wonderful friends who were in the Bay Area at the time, a lot of really engaged, wonderful people, and also in the process meeting uh, someone who would come to be my you know, future and current husband, right? So it almost felt as if all these different pieces of my life kind of fell together. And so when I say accidental, um, mm-hmm. I sort of mean, you know, it, it – I was pulled into a direction and compelled in a way to do this work that wasn't just intellectual or scholarly, but it was a really holistic process in which all these different pieces of my life um, came together and brought me to this work. And so that's, you know, sort of the genesis of my own personal uh development with what would become uh this book um, mm. and the process of writing it.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's interesting to hear all that because I think it comes through in kind of the way you tie the various threads uh, from the book together, um, how those kind of personal interests and, and your kind of educational interests uh, are intersecting there. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and
1: just to mention really quickly, yeah. my PhD at Berkeley was in ethnic studies and the ethnic studies department. So that is an interdisciplinary department in which we look at both cultural and social, uh, social, social science methods. Um, to study race and ethnicity, both in the United States and beyond. So, you know, it was a very wide-ranging department. I was trained by cultural studies folks, social scientists, sociologists, political scientists, anthropologists, historians. Um, But interestingly enough, and I I wanted to add this, I was never trained by anyone or talked to anyone in religious studies during my graduate work. Um, And so for me, it was a it turned into this very personal, you know, journey, both in terms of seeking out, you know, how to understand Islam in the context of these political dynamics I was looking at. um, But it also became a point of intervention for me, where I started to see that in political activism and particularly in the progressive left, uh, religion is something that is really under discussed and misunderstood in terms of how to approach it as something that can be incredibly generative and necessary to understand as we try to build movements.
0: Hmm. Um, Now, well, one of the kind of threads that uh, goes through this book, which you you bring up in the introduction, is what you call the blackness of American Islam. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of spell this out for this? What what do you mean by that phrase? And how do the subjects that you bring to understand Islam in America, uh, how does it transform uh, kind of the typical narratives we hear about this community?
1: Right. Um, So one of the things You know, in ethnic studies or in the study of race uh, and ethnicity in the United States, one of the ways that we talk about it or I think about it with my students is how do we understand not only the presence of things in the archive or, you know, historical documents, literature, voices, et cetera, but how do we understand the absences? You know, that's something that you know, we ask students and try to think through ourselves. And as you start to understand kind of how to read absences, um, like who was this building built by? Whose labor was it? Um, you start to understand that the absences are actually presences, what Avery Gordon calls this seething presence. And she calls it ghostly matter. Right? And she has this book called Haunting and the Sociological Imagination. Right? So when I started thinking about what Islam was or is in the United States as someone who doesn't come from religious studies, who really is a scholar of lived religion and how people have lived, uh, you know, how, lived and expressed their religious identities within a U.S. context, I I asked myself how to think through how Islam has existed as a presence in the United States, both in the cultural imaginary and the ways people have thought about what Islam is and who Muslims are, and in the lived remnants and legacies of who Muslims uh, have been and are now. So when I think about it like that, the fact that anywhere from one, third, one fifth to one third of enslaved Africans who were brought to this country, uh, were Muslim, right? That, that, just that idea that these enslaved peoples who, who identified as Muslim, who had Muslim practices came and brought that presence into the Americas, um, produced something. It produced something that scholars have called you know they, they've looked at how it, it you know certain types of West African musics influence the blues right or influence certain ways uh, that food is prepared in African American communities and in American communities. the fact that the large resurgence of Islam uh, in this country after many of those practices were snuffed out by the brutality of slavery. Right, came up in the early 20th century through groups like the Moorish Science Temple, the Ampathia movement in Islam, and the Nation of Islam, which were predominantly African American. Right, these created these practices and presences of Islam. That don't just go away just because the practitioners may not be practicing. They imprint themselves onto society and how this country imagines who Muslims are and what Muslims do and what Islam is, and also how the state engages with Islam and Muslims. So when I talk about the blackness, the you know kind of centrality of blackness, I'm talking about the fact that African American Muslims still comprise. Uh, you know, almost a fourth of the American Muslim community. But African-American practices of Islam also comprise the basis of how this religion has existed in this country, um, you know, for centuries. So I, I feel as if that is a central presence that must be reckoned with. Every time we look at state violence towards Muslims or we look at the ways in which Muslims are racialized in the current you know, moment, that blackness must be reckoned with. And so that's, that's what I mean by that and, and how it, it's not something that's easy to reckon with and it's not always clear cut about how to do so. But if we don't, we're missing a big piece of the picture.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Your book focuses primarily uh, on black, but also women of color, uh, Muslims, uh, mainly from the 20th uh, century to today. And, uh, you know, in the title, you use this phrase being Muslim, and uh, you echo that with this phrase Muslimness uh, in in the text itself. So uh, where does this notion of, of being Figure into your goals and approaches? And how did you seek out ways of experiencing uh, Black Muslim womanhood?
1: As a scholar, like I said, I came from an interdisciplinary department where we were trained in different methods. So, you know, when people ask me about my methodological approach to this book, um, (laughs) I'm kind of all over the place. I mean, primarily what I'm most comfortable with and what I've done for the longest time is cultural and literary analysis analyzing texts and so i you know i'll ask students or and and you know ask myself like well what do you do when there are no texts to think through the subjects that you're interested in exploring you know so when i started this book and tried to think like how would you write a history of muslim women uh in this country there was very little to analyze or to look at in terms of archives. So I look to the work of uh, black feminist historians, You know, like my colleague here at Rutgers, Deborah Gray White, um, the work of Eula Taylor at Berkeley, who just wrote a wonderful book about women in the nation of Islam. Um, and I'm pre- I was particularly drawn to Taylor's idea of street strolling um, which she describes uh, when talking about the process of writing her book on Amy Jacques Garvey, uh, one of the wives of Marcus Garvey. And the way she describes that is in the absence of these formal archives, you know, as a black feminist historian, you actually might as a method go stroll the streets in which you know, the subjects that you're interested in, you know, looking at, uh, would have walked, right? So you can see the sights they might have seen or recreate the, the things they would have walked by or smelled or heard, right? To actually, you know, street stroll. And I, and that struck me very much as something that I should do, uh, with these women that I was interested in reconstructing the narratives of. So the notion of being came through in that because religious expression is so much about being, right? Being in the presence of God, being in the presence of the divine, being a certain place when you pray. Um, So I started thinking about the ways this affective structure of Muslim women's lives could serve as an anchor to tell their stories. And so that's really what I tried to think through in each of the chapters, in the absence of you know formal documents, I thought, what if we tell a history of Muslim women's being, right what it felt like to be Muslim at different moments in time, and what that meant in those historical contexts of race and gender and class and citizenship um, and of transnational belonging as Muslims and You know, I I hope that I was able to convey that being Muslim for different Muslim women meant something very different in these different contexts across different geographical and historical moments. Because one of the things that I'm writing against, right, we're always writing against our present moment, is this kind of static and essentialized notion of Islam and Muslim women that exists You know, in popular culture that, oh, there's this woman in the black veil and she's oppressed. And, you know, this idea of the poor Muslim woman that, you know, we circulate and recirculate in these tired ways. And so I'm always aware of these static tropes and stereotypes that I'm actually writing against. So for me, it was really important to create a really complex and rich, um, diverse tapestry of what being Muslim could be uh, just in the United States, not to mention, you know, the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, you I, I was convinced. I think you are certainly effective. Uh and this kind of leads into, you know, your your kind of reflection of your own work. Um, I think signals um, kind of some of the uh theoretical apparatus you use um in this notion of againstness mm-hmm. um because this is also part of how, how you're understanding your subjects. Um you use this phrase effective insurgency. Mm-hmm. Um, which I I find really valuable. I'm going to uh, start using this. (laughs) So uh, can can you tell us what this term means in your work and and how does it operate in the lives of uh, black Muslim women that you look at?
1: Right. So one of the, one of the interesting things about doing research on Muslim women at different moments in time. And I actually, it's interesting. I, I say in the introduction to the book, I didn't set out to write a book about African American Muslim women, I, I wanted to think about what being a Muslim woman meant throughout the 20th and 21st century, you know, a cultural history of the last century. Um, and in the historical record, really, you know, the main subjects that identified as Muslim and as Muslim women prior to the 1960s and even the 1970s were almost all African American women. Right. So so I I say this in the introduction, that the fact that the first three chapters are predominant, you know, primarily about black Muslim women is just a fact of the historical record. Like we're talking about Muslim women, Muslim women based in the U.S., but they were all almost African-American, you know, prior to a certain moment in time, at least those who publicly identified as a Muslim woman. So I wanted to say that. And so from looking at Muslim women at different points in time, what I realized is there's a different set of circumstances, which circumscribes and affects the way women have been Muslim at different periods in time. And as you know, you likely know, and most of the listeners would know women's bodies are always sites of struggle. They are always, you know, women's sexuality, you know, especially for Muslim women, how Muslim women dress, how they are supposed to act, how they behave in public space. These have always been questions of politics that are taken up in the political sphere. So it occurred to me that it feels a certain way to be Muslim and to be a Muslim woman. right? And how you feel is very contingent upon that those circumstances around you, right? What the politics of any given moment are. So one would imagine right now in 2018, in the midst of all that's going on uh, in this country at the moment with the Kavanaugh hearings and the Me Too movement and the Muslim ban and all these things, it feels a certain way to be a Muslim woman. So when I talk about affective insurgency, in the U.S., which is um, uh, 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 um, a white, you know, European uh, majority country and a Christian majority country, and it has been, right, to be Muslim and a person of color, African American or otherwise, right, is to live as a minority religion and racial and ethnic category, which then must es- express its you know, religious and racial and gendered identity against that dominant norm. And again, I just wanted to capture the feeling of it, that it's not just a conscientious sort of like political protest expression, but that it actually manifests itself in how we carry ourselves every day, you know, where we choose to walk, where we choose to, You know, pursue our education, what it feels like to walk to the store. You know, women, we think about, you know, what we wear. You know, if you're a Muslim woman, you think about, oh, is it safe for me to go out? Should I tie my scarf a different way so I'm less conspicuous? And so to do this is affective in that you always feel those types of sensations in your body and it's insurgent. Because you are always operating against the norms of what an acceptable or a normal, quote unquote, citizen subject should should look like and be like, you know, at a given moment in time. And there has never been a moment in the United States in which to be a Muslim woman, a Muslim woman of color, uh, a Muslim woman who either wears or doesn't wear a scarf has been the norm. So it's always insurgent in that way. You always have to express your identity against the norms at any given time. So that that's how that kind of concept came up. Um, and I use it as a way of showing how at different times also that insurgency means something different. Like right now, I think about how a lot of young Muslim women or Muslim women in general who wear the scarf are you know, sort of very consciously wearing it to express their identity, even though they know it puts them in a vulnerable position. Right. Whereas I talk about um, sister Sonia Sanchez and uh, black women in the black arts movement and the nation of Islam in the 1960s, consciously donning, you know, the the clothing and the symbols of Islam through the nation of Islam to express and of their beauty and pride as Black women, and taking great pleasure in that community and strength that they saw uh, Islam as offering them. So, you know, they felt in that moment that Islam gave them strength and community, and offered them a whole new world. Whereas now, you hear a lot of Muslim women talking about how uh, they feel vulnerable and afraid because of the situation that they're in now or the political situation. So it means different things in different times and, and it shifts, but it's always felt in the body. And it's also always something very intimate yet very public at the same time.
0: So you take this episodic approach in in terms of a, a number of case studies and you begin uh, with an image, a really kind of um, Kind of interesting image from uh, the 1920s mm-hmm. of uh, four African American female converts mm-hmm. um, and through this image you kind of it's, it starts starts the chapter off um, as kind of a, a kind of more uh, robust exploration of the various uh, social components happening around around these figures so um, can, can you kind of s- set up this image for us sure. uh, because it does help us with this analysis? Um, And then kind of uh, walk us through uh, some of the social settings uh, of African-Americans in the 1920s that you're looking at, uh, the Ahmadiyya uh, movement that becomes important uh, here for understanding these women. And um, what are the ways that the the women in the 1920s uh, are being Muslim in this context?
1: Mm -hmm. So... The image is one that um, I had been interested, fascinated in uh, for a long time. And that is because this particular image, and let me explain to the listeners, um, that this is a sort of stock Victorian sort of Photograph of four African-American women posing. It's very clear, clearly a studio photograph where they've been posed and asked to dress up and positioned, like two are seated in chairs and two are standing. And they are dressed in this type of interesting clothing where they seem to be wearing their church clothes in some way, like nice blouses and skirts or dresses. And I think a number of them even have church hats on, right? Right. But in addition to their church clothes and hats, they have various types of sheets and, you know, uh, bedcloths. And in one case, it even looks like a big quilt wrapped around their heads and their faces and wrapped around their shoulders in ways that resemble uh, Muslim women's coverings. Right. So they're clearly identifiable as Muslim women. Right? But the ways in which they create this identification has been done from items that they seem to have found in their homes that they might have had in a chest and are in addition to the clothes um, that they might have worn to a nice gathering or to church. So this picture was taken in 1922, at the end of 1922, uh, on the south side of Chicago, uh, is where... Uh, I believe the picture was taken. I don't know the exact location of the studio. I believe it was actually taken at the Ahmadiyya Mosque on the south side of Chicago on Wabash Avenue. Uh, And the four women were converts to the Ahmadiyya movement, uh, which was uh, a missionary movement, which was one of the earlier earliest uh, movements of Islam in the early 20th century. And it was preached by South Asian missionaries who were trying to uh, bring Islam to the United States. And and without kind of going into the larger ways in which they proselytized, uh, it's significant to note that the Ahmadiyya movement was the movement uh, that converted many of the prominent jazz musicians, such as Yusuf Latif, Ahmed Jamal, McCoy Tyner, uh, etc., to Islam during this period from the 1930s to the 60s or so. So these four women are in this picture and this picture is used in many different texts, not textbooks. I guess we don't really have textbooks, but uh, uh, histories and narratives of Islam in America. It it appears in a number of books. And so what I always asked was, okay, you know, just very basic sort of question. Like, so we keep using this picture of these four women as a way of showing, okay, black women converted to Islam, there were Muslim women in these movements, Um, but no one ever bothered to actually look into who these women were and what their story actually was. And what might have motivated them to convert to Islam? If we did sort of indicate that, if scholars did indicate that, they would say something like, oh, they were you know, swept up in the movements for black nationalism that were taking place at the time in which you know, conversion to Islam was encouraged. And so, okay, the women were black nationalists. But that didn't really seem sufficient to me to understand their stories. And so sort of the work of being a feminist historian or doing feminist history Historical work is to really try to understand the perspectives uh, of women, you know, at, at a given moment in time. So that's basically what I tried to do. I tried to actually look for this. Is my most archival chapter. I tried to actually find who these women were and through a variety of methods, you know, looking at the conversion rules that the Ampongia movement kept meticulously, um, looking at uh, census documents, looking at uh, local address, you know, uh, lists of addresses and things like that. I was able to find uh, one of the women pretty well covered in the documents, a woman named Florence uh, or Sister Zainab. Uh, who I was able to track from her birth in Maryland uh, to her move to Chicago, to her conversion to Islam in 1922. And so I did, I employed what I spoke of earlier, Eula Taylor's method of street strolling and trying to think through how someone like her, who was born into a family of six, uh, you know, formerly enslaved people, Uh, her father was, you know, uh, enslaved and then moved to Ellicott City, Maryland, where they had six children. How would a woman like her who worked as a maid and domestic worker and a nanny come to the south side of Chicago and decide to become Muslim and be convert through a South Asian missionary who, you know, spoke of a religion she might likely have never heard of prior to this. So you know the the chapter is just a way of thinking through the different components in that story, which might have which I look at as being. Her relationship to the Black church and why certain women, working class women turned away from the Black church, the ways in which Chicago was emerging as a global city at that time, you know, through the World's Fair and different things that were going on, and the ways in which Black women were under constant threat of sexual and physical violence and how they were looking for ep- opportunities to find safety and also um, advance themselves educationally and find more opportunities for their children. So all of these are reasons uh, I consider in thinking through how Florence uh, encountered and then became Muslim through the AMI.
0: Hmm. Now, uh, in the next chapter, you jump to the, the 1950s and 60s and you think about, um, issues of, of representation in a way um, through how domestic spaces of, of black Muslims uh, and black Muslim women specifically um, are depicted. And you use a, a really interesting set of sources, uh, kind of diverse and, um, you know, really engaging. And looking at these types of sources, what 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 do you find as kind of the, the trends or the themes in, uh, the portrayals of Muslim women during this period um, how how do they get framed mm-hmm. um, and uh, what what cultural representations do we have of of black Muslim women during this time?
1: Um, so those so that chapter was an interesting and maybe the most difficult one to write because of the all the different You know, archives and and subjects that I look at, the one that has the most coverage and has drawn the most interest has been the women and the nation of Islam, which is what the uh, chapter looks at. Um, And I I made it very clear in the chapter that I wasn't trying to write a history or, you know, a, a narrative of this experiences of women in the nation, because that has been done. Like I said, Eula Taylor's just written an amazing book. Um, Jamila Kareem has done great work. And Don Marie Gibson on the women in the nation. Um, And there have been other accounts, uh, firsthand accounts of women's experiences in the nation of Islam. What I was interested in was the ways in which domesticity Right. And this is right before the 1960s, in which you start to see texts around uh, burgeoning movements of second wave feminism and this idea of women's rights really coming up in the larger consciousness of the nation. I wanted to understand how the domesticity of black Muslim women in the nation of Islam, women who were voluntarily you know, donning these white outfits of purity and saying that they wanted to be faithful to their men and stay home and take care of the children and sew and cook and, and, and enter, you know, these Muslim girls training program in which they were trained in the domestic arts, you know, sewing, cooking, caring for the home, where this was their primary vocation. Right? Every day they were not supposed to be on the front lines. They were not supposed to be, you know, out there ag- agitating for justice or um, I wanted to understand how we could look at that in a more complex way than just saying, oh, well, they were, you know, they were brainwashed. They were oppressed. They didn't, you know. They were just accepting this patriarchal structure, because in all of the interviews with Black Muslim women in the nation and beyond, they talk about how they very much felt as this, this domestic work was political. It was a political act. They were devoting themselves to building a strong Black nation, which they hoped would liberate their communities. So, in looking at these images, I think I look at. Um, I look at Life Magazine, I look at uh, Gordon Parks' images of the Nation of Islam, I look at the ways in which Malcolm X used images of black women uh, in the one and only issue of the Messenger Magazine, which was the official uh, publication of the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X edited one of them. Um, And then I look at the ways in which uh, James Baldwin Portrays black Muslim women in the fire next time. And in all of those, you see how the women themselves constitute again this type of insurgent presence, not just within their communities, as you know, very much contributing to the struggle for black liberation or for a strong black nation that the nation of Islam is engaged in, but they also stand as a foil to larger white American notions of helpless women who are sequestered in the home. And, and that was kind of the big, you know, take or big thing that jumped out at me when I started to look at these archives, that in the 1950s and 60s, at the height of the Cold War in this country, and the idea, you know, Rosie the Riveter and all these images that, oh, the women are going to work, there was this real... um. Anxiety (laughs) amongst white American men that they were being emasculated, not just by uh, women going to work, but that was kind of emblematic of how America was being emasculated by the Soviets and the Cold War. Um, And so the fact that Black women were voluntarily entering domestic space and voluntarily taking up these types of domestic duties served as a gauntlet thrown down in many ways. You know, Elijah Muhammad would talk about this in his speeches. Like, look at our women. They want to raise the children. They are the basis of the Black nation. And this was almost, this was like a challenge uh, to white American men, heterosexual men who were feeling this anxiety of women going to work. And it, it was a threat. It was a threat. And so that's also something I noticed in my readings of the images um, and the response to them that white uh, African American Muslim women performing household duties was frightening to this country. That they would willingly kind of enter the space of domesticity and perform these acts for a greater political purpose, right? Was something that was very unsettling. Uh, to white America at the time.
0: In the next chapter, you um, you focus on images of marriage uh, among uh, black Muslim women, um, and you look at Betty Shabazz and Dakota Stanton. Um, can you tell us about these women um, and then specifically how they were seen by publics? In what ways were they being Muslim in, in their communities?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so the third chapter, in a way, I see it as an extension of the second one and continue continuing the ideas of how domesticity and African-American womanhood was being constitute, constituted, um, in this case, in the 1960s, primarily. Um, and I wanted to really think through how two women... Uh, that some people are familiar with, uh, Betty Shabazz, who was the wife and then widow of Malcolm X, um, and Dakota Staton, who was a well-known jazz singer at the time, publicly identified um, as Muslims, but were always seen through or in the shadows of their, you know, in some cases, more well-known husbands. Dakota Staton's husband was a trumpeter, a jazz trumpeter, named Talib Daoud, who was in many accounts of her life that exists, um, seen as a sort of Svengali figure in her life that sort of controlled her and made her Muslim as a type of, you know, control, control, uh, con- and, uh, control, um, ideological control over her. So what I wanted to think through was how these women actually, if you look at their stories, uh, chose to be Muslim and actively constructed their identities as Muslims in a public and in a cultural milieu in which there was really no such thing. There was no such thing as a public, uh, publicly facing Muslim woman in the United States at that time who identified as such and was on the cover of magazines and did all these things right, that they did, that both Betty Shabazz and Dakota Staten did. And so in thinking through that, I wanted to understand how, again, against this idea that marriage was constrictive, that they were oppressed by their husbands, um, and against these ideas that would also emerge in second wave feminist politics, how they actually saw their marriages as these spaces of solace and safety from which to build their identities, as public Muslim women, right? And so for Betty Shabazz, who's the more well-known of the two, um, as Malcolm's wife and then as his widow, I look at the ways in which she created a persona, right, in the press and both in private letters that she wrote to Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, in which she, you see her kind of piecing together what being Muslim means in her life and how she expresses that in her own desires to do things like go back to school um, or, you know, advance her children or, you know, get her children into certain schools. And then after uh, Malcolm's assassination, she very consciously chooses to live her life as a Muslim woman. She puts her children in Islamic school. She takes them to the mosque, you know, every week. Um, And she, she, she passes that on to them, but she does throw. So through the legacy of her husband and his, his, you know, his legacy of uh, uh, black nationalism and black empowerment. And so her, conception of Islam to their six daughters is always um, a negotiation between her role as Malcolm's wife and then widow and through her own exploration of Islam. For Dakota Staton, who was a really well-known jazz singer, um, many people see, think Islam ruined her career. But I look at these, Uh, press images of her and think of the ways that she saw Islam as a space of safety and solace from the types of you know, aggressions, micro and macro that she experienced as an African-American woman on the jazz circuit who was touring in clubs, very likely, you know, the subject of sexual advances and always on the road, traveling, touring, right? She saw this idea of being able to stay home and be a good Muslim housewife as a, as an empowering uh, a, a sort of role for her. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this was not, you know, always the case, and it, she did ultimately wind up divorcing uh, her husband and moving to England, where it's unclear whether she, you know, practiced Islam or remained Muslim. But she very much constructed a persona around being Muslim that was both a critique of her career um, and also uh, an embrace of the sort of politics of being a black woman um, who was choosing to be in domestic space, um, understanding that that was a political act at that time. So, so it's it's it, that one is a little hard to talk about because I, I kind of see the contradictions that exist, but that was part of the work to kind of look at these contradictions and not say, well, you know, they were empowered, they were not empowered. That's part of what I want to, say about being Muslim in general that it's not just an empowering or feminist identity or it's not not an empowering or feminist it's not an oppressive identity it's one that changes even within the space of you know day to day life for women in which they negotiate every single day
0: mm-hmm. now uh, the the I, I don't know if you say half but the second uh, sections yeah. of the book uh mm-hmm shift gears a little bit. And uh, one of the kind of threads that run through them is uh, questions of of, of feminism Mm -hmm. um, in kind of, and it's, I guess, contestation and uh, mediation. Um, So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and then how that kind of, uh, you know, questions of feminism plays out um, first in the case of uh, kind of portrayals of uh, the Iranian revolution Mm-hmm. Um, and how how forms of femis- feminism uh, or American forms of feminism respond to uh, our, uh, Iranian women and and issues of uh, the veil.
1: Right. So that chapter I always talk about. You know, I talk about in the overview of the book. Chapter four is 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 a type of shift from the previous chapters. Insofar as I'm really looking at what. Islam becomes in the national imaginary um, after 1979. So prior to the 1970s, as I say, Islam is predominantly African-American in the country. I mean, people aren't really talking about Islam and Muslims the way you know we sort of have for the last 20 or 30 years now, as this foreign presence, as this Um, presence that's associated with terrorism and radical fundamentalism and, you know, all these different uh, signifiers, you know, all these things that it's come to signify uh, post 9-11. Prior to the 1970s, if you're talking about meeting a Muslim or engaging a Muslim, you're probably talking about an African-American Muslim. This isn't to say that there weren't non-Black Muslims in this country. There certainly were, uh, but they weren't particularly vocal or covered in the press or in the public sphere. So when does this all change, right? And so this is the question I was trying to think through. When did Muslim women go from having a relatively kind of open tableau in which to construct their identities? You know, people like Betty Shabazz, people like Dakota Staten, women in the Nation of Islam, they were very much constructing their identities in line with, you know, the racial and gendered uh, um, desires that they had for freedom and liberation. And they were constructing these identities in a place where there wasn't a lot of pushback about people saying, oh, well, that's not what a Muslim is, right? Or, you know, Muslims are like this, you know, there wasn't a lot of that. That changed in the 1970s. And that was because of the geopolitical crisis between the U.S. and the Middle East around oil, Right, And in this context, and six, eight months before the Iranian hostage crisis, uh, the big event that introduced this figure of the veiled Muslim women to the U.S. general public was the Women's March in Iran uh, in March of 1979. And if you do kind of a big Google search or a big archival search of all the major newspapers in this country, the first time. You see, in the 20th century, this very concerted conversation around the veil in the public is during this week in March of 1979. And so the way I look at this media coverage, every news, every station covered it, every big newspaper covered it, um, all the big magazine, all the big news magazines, Time, Newsweek, etc., all covered it. Um... What was really interesting about that coverage was the way it directly responded to what feminism was emerging as uh, during that time in the 1970s. So in 1979, second wave feminism, sort of, you know, this idea of women's equality in the workplace, um, abortion rights, sexual freedom, certain ideas that we've come to kind of call feminism and we don't really understand that it's a very particular brand of U.S.-based and Western feminism that was rooted in the subjectivities of white middle-class women uh, who were you know, advocating for their rights at this time. That conception of feminism completely shaped the way we understood these notions of the veil that were emerging in 1979 in March. And so I try to look at the ways in which second wave feminist ideologies produced this what I call this American discourse at the veil of the veil at the time and how this is also very much affected by the ways in which US-based second wave white middle class and upper class feminists were unable or unwilling to deal with issues of race within uh, U.S. feminist conversations, challenges by Black feminists, challenges by queer and, you know, uh, uh, Latino and Native feminists, right? They were white, heterosexual, middle class to upper class women um, who were creating a certain idea of what women's rights were. And these very much shaped why women in Iran at this time became who we needed to save to try to bring the feminist movement global. And so, you know, a lot of my chapters, I think a lot of this book is not, as someone who works in American studies and critical American studies, a lot of the chapters are not just about, you know, Islam or Muslims, but they're a larger story of how we as a nation have responded to the presence of Islam and Muslims in this country. Um, And this this one in particular does that. I mean, I think it really thinks about the ways in which why uh, the the, the conversation around the veil is the way it is in the United States. It's different than it is in Europe, right? And the issues of race and class and gender and sexuality that play into that um, and how we talk about it in the United States.
0: Yeah. And I, I, it leads nicely into, um, the kind of final full chapter, which you do think about, uh, uh, women of color, um, and kind of various interpretations of, uh, kind of egalitarianism or feminism, uh, what we might call uh, Muslim feminism. Um, can you, can you kind of outline this to, uh, to listeners? What, um, what made you choose these specific women? What kind of, um, uh, Threads do you see across the way they uh, they are being Muslim?
1: Mm-hmm. I think one of the major challenges of writing any book about Islam that comes into the contemporary era in the United States right now is that it's still unfolding in real time <laughs> at every single moment, right? Like you don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. So I actually struggled really hard with how to like write a closing chapter of this book. Right. Um, And, and, and for me, you know, kind of what I came to was that I really needed to see who was on the front lines or not the front line. I mean, I don't know. I don't like that sort of military metaphor, but who was actually working in the field and doing the type of work that I saw as an extension of all these previous iterations of being muslim that i think about in the book right and so i i tried to kind of work through this idea of muslim feminism even though i very clearly say that many muslim women don't want to be called feminists there's a lot of meanings and you kind know, of tensions around that word where they may not be you know may not want to be labeled as such but i wanted to talk to women who were working or had been working um, in this intersection of what it means to be Muslim in the United States, what it means to be a woman in Muslim communities in the United States, um, and, and intersecting with larger struggles of social justice, enfranchisement, um, politics, right? And doing so... Uh, in, a, in a distinctively US context. So the four women I talked to, um, Sister Aisha Al who who is a longtime uh, activist and advocate uh, for Muslim communities, not just Muslim women, but Muslim communities, has worked with the UN and lots of, you know, NGOs and nonprofits talking about uh, human rights discourse in Islam um, is just being honored this week uh, with a Lifetime Achievement Award um, by CARE, the Council for American Islamic Relations. She's someone I interviewed to think through how she, as an African-American woman, came to do this, you know, uh, work uh, over the course of, you know, her life. I talked to Asifa Qureshi Landis, who's um A law professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who's worked extensively uh, on women's rights issues within uh, the United States and thinking through how Islamic law operates in the courts uh, and how they, they, you know, how Muslim women deal with things like domestic violence and how that gets mediated within the court system or, and then within Muslim communities themselves, where a lot of these issues are very difficult to talk about. Um, Leila Al-Mariati, who is a physician in Southern California, Palestinian American, who has always infused her work as a doctor uh, and an OBGYN with struggles for Palestinian justice, Right. Um, and, and how she thinks through her position as a Palestinian American woman and as a Muslim. And finally, Hazel Gomez, uh, who's a Latina Latinx convert to Islam, who is working in a community in Detroit, uh, trying to build uh, a Muslim community that is very tapped into local struggles, um, around Uh, urban redevelopment and, and housing crisis. And, you know, you hear about things in, in Michigan, you know, water issues, land issues, all of these things. So again, I wanted just to have women talk about what they're doing and have those voices and those stories stand as clearly growing out of the larger legacy and histories of the ways Muslim women have always organized and struggled against uh, the circumstances that not only impact their lives, but impact those of the communities around them. And they stand as Muslims. And it is because they're Muslim, all of them say, that they do the type of work they do in social justice, activism, and advocacy. It is Islam and being Muslim that produces that impulse in them. It is part of what drives them. And I wanted to capture that um, in their own voices. And that goes into the epilogue and conclusion as well. I don't know if you were going to ask me about that. Um,
0: You can feel free to.
1: Yeah, but that very much, I mean, and that was – this story, so I end the book with this short epilogue um, with, this, with this visit to an urban farm in El sobrani California um, with someone I've known for a long time, Maya Blow, who started this um, farm, a uh, soul flower farm, I think about seven or eight years ago. I can't remember exactly right now. Um, and she is a, a, a mixed race, African-American and white uh, Muslim woman. Um, who has kind of gone through this journey of both being Muslim and learning homeopathy and urban gardening, I mean, urban urban farming and, you know, buying her own farm. And that dream of uh, ecological, you know, space and trying to build this space um, has been very closely intertwined with her spiritual journey. And in this moment, you know, with all of the political stuff going in, going on, we're also living in this moment of intense ecological crisis, right? Climate change, natural disasters are happening at an unprecedented rate, right? And so one of the things that Maya talks about that being Muslim kind of taught her was this closeness and intimacy that muslims are supposed to have with their environment and the earth and how muslims are stewards of this earth right and so she um has always seen her journey um, her spiritual her religious and her journey as an urban farmer as an activist as completely intertwined And so she's created the space Soul Flower Farm in which now she kind of started it off as an expression of her, you know, maybe of her spiritual identity, but now has opened it up and is doing um, workshops with. Uh, People who recently got out of prison to teach them how to work the land, opening it up for spiritual retreats for women of color to find a place where they can convene and talk about their issues. And this comes out of this moment we're in of ecological catastrophe, of climate change, of racial injustice, and racial uh, and gender inequality. And her farm stands as this space in which she is taking her identity as a Muslim and putting it into um, an actual physical space, a farm in which she can gather together all these different ways of being and kind of bring them into uh what she sees as the imperative of her faith.
0: Uh yeah, it's it's an excellent book, Sylvia. And <laughs> Thank you for writing and thank you for sharing. I also, I'm, I'm going to say that I will uh, continue to judge the book by its cover. It's a beautiful cover, <laughs> and I was hoping you could maybe just tell folks, um, you know, they could easily view the cover. So, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the cover?
1: Yes, I am. I was incredibly blessed uh, to get the permission of an amazing artist who is an African American Muslim woman based in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, named Kelly Istahar Crosby, Um, and I have been a long-time admirer of her work. Um, She she does amazing work. She has a website, I think, where you can view all her different paintings. And luckily, uh, we had some mutual friends, and so I was able to reach out to her and ask if we could have permission to use this beautiful painting, which is called Henna Hands. Um, For the cover of my book. And she, you know, very kindly and graciously agreed. And I think it represents so much of what I'm trying to capture uh, in the book, just with the images of the hands, um, you know, in motion, doing something as the receptors of touch and feeling, um, all the you know, vibrancy and diversity of the colors and the richness of the patterns um, kind of all coming together in the cover there. And like I said, I was just really grateful and honored that she allowed me to use the image on the cover of the book. Kelly, it's a Crosby based in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Yeah, That's great. Um, now, Sylvia, all of us in Islamic studies are hoping you're not leaving us and going off and doing some project that is, totally speaking to other uh, other disciplines or areas. Uh, so our fingers are crossed. What, uh, what kind of things are you working on now um, and what can we hope for in the future? Well,
1: actually, Christian, I probably will be in touch with you more in the future because what I've really been thinking is interesting and important for scholars of both Asian American studies and Islamic studies to think through Um, Are the intersections of Asian American identity and Islam, and not just in terms of you know a book about Asian American Muslims, non-South Asian American Asian American Muslims, so uh, Muslims of Chinese American or Korean American or Vietnamese American or even Southeast Asian Indonesian Malaysian um, American communities in the United States. Um, But I'm interested in, and and this is you know it's very nebulous in the making. But I'm interested in the larger ways in which notions of Asianness and particularly uh, Chinese-ness, okay, so China and the US racial imaginary have intersected uh with Islam um, in how we talk about power, uh, economics, uh, race. Um, and how this comes into larger conversations that are going on right now. So, for example, um, in Samuel Huntington's Clash of the Civilizations, uh, the two major threats that he identifies as being the preeminent threats to the U.S. are cynic cultures, Chinese culture, and Islamic culture, right? And so he has this whole idea that these are sort of, you know, parallel um uh, forces that pose a threat to our global hegemony to u.s imperialism right and so there's that intersection there and then there are ways in which um the the situation with the uyghur muslim population right now is being talked about uh in the u.s press and how this is being taken up or not taken up by U.S. Muslim communities in certain ways. And so I'm just interested in thinking through as someone who was trained or has dealt with a lot of um, racial formation issues or comparative racial formation issues pertaining to Asian American communities, how we think through that intersection with Islam. And I'd really also like to do um, some ethnographic work with Chinese American Muslims um, and other East Asian American Muslims as well, and, and try to understand the different forms of racialization um, and religious um, ideology that come to form their identities. So that's what I'm thinking about
0: now. Wow. Sounds great. I'm, I'm excited to hear hear more about it. I in have the coming to read
1: years. All your, you know, I'm really excited to <laughs> your field of study and, and really start thinking about Islam in China and how that travels to the U.S. And, and things like
0: that. Yeah, there's there's lots to be done. I'm glad you're you're on it. So, well, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Sylvia, for uh, talking about this wonderful book and uh, and good luck on your future stuff.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
0: That was my conversation with Sylvia Chan Malik about Being Muslim, a cultural history of women of color and American Islam, published with NYU Press in 2018. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.